Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Good. I'm Sophie. I've been here, I think, once before, maybe twice. Um, but it's good to be back with you guys this morning. And I'd love if we could, if you're able, would we, would we stand um, to worship together? welcome your presence into this place, into our lives. Lord, would you have your way in us this morning? Lord, whatever we've come with, whatever our minds, um, whatever's on our minds right now, whatever we might be distracted by, um, even good things, God, we just lay it down right now at your feet. And we just choose to fix our gaze on you, Jesus. our eyes on you. I was just thinking in, in Luke 24, I believe it's um, when Jesus is walking with, with the two men on the road to Emmaus and they didn't recognize him. And later, when he broke the bread, he, that's when they finally recognized him. They said, like, were our hearts not burning with passion within us when, when he was standing right beside us? And it just was reminding me, like, oh, I don't want to miss him. Like, when he's, he's here in this place, he's always with us, of course. But it's easy to miss him even when he's with us all the time. And so, God, we just come in this morning. We want, we want to see you. We want to meet with you. We don't want to miss what you're, what you're doing right here and right now. Um, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who loves us. You love us so much. So, Lord, will we pour out our love back onto you this morning? God, would we receive your love? Would we be people that live in your love, that we experience healing and freedom because of your perfect love? So I thank you, God, that your perfect love is here in this place. Your perfect love casts out all fear. So we receive it, Lord. We, we choose to walk in it, and we choose to um, lay ourselves down as worship to you this morning to really meet with you to praise you for who you are, to thank you for what you've done. So we just give you honor and glory and praise.
Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We thank you, God, that we are refreshed when we come and meet with you. joy would strengthen every person here. We thank you for your joy, God. Your joy is supernatural. It fills us up, and it, it usually doesn't make sense. So, God, we just thank you for it, and we receive it right now. Ah, church, good morning. Yes. Oh, how's that? Better? Yeah, well, I'm going blind, so my option is have light on my words or start wearing glasses. So uh, I know two weeks ago when you guys, yeah, a lot of readers being offered right now. Thank you very much for that. A couple of weeks ago, you guys offered me all kinds of prayers, and uh, I just want to let you guys know that although the last two weeks have been interesting, uh, difficult, and adverse, um, there was never a time when we, Jen and I were kind of feeling like we were alone. And that's a really wonderful thing to have, is to have a church body behind you so that when life knocks on the door and presents you with a unique opportunity, unfortunately, I've, as you guys know, I've had kidney issues for 12 years. Um, it's been pretty stable. Unfortunately, the COVID that I was able to receive um, diminished my ability to fight. And unfortunately, my system crashed. And so it was entertaining to be talking to the doctor uh, three days before getting sick about what the future holds, and then three days later to find myself in an isolation room where the only thing they would do, is, as my friend Terry would say, is the vampires would come every four hours <laughs> and remove large quantities of blood from me, which is interesting because I didn't feel like I had that much blood in me in the beginning. So I was really surprised the kid coming out, but uh, for those of you who've never had the privilege of walking through dialysis with someone, um, just really grateful that they can do something like that, right? Really grateful that God can allow your body to be so broken and yet still have the prolonging of it all. So thank you guys for your prayers. Um, we still don't know as much as we should. Someone asked me this morning, so what's your blood type? And all, I still don't know. I have no idea. 
Um, and so there's a lot more unknown. So just keep praying, and we'll walk through it. And as we do know more, um, we'll let you know more. But I can tell you this. Um, there's a bunch of people in dialysis. There's a bunch of people that God has set aside for me just to minister to. And I'm absolutely 100% assured that the ministry that God will have for me, along with my police ministry, which I'm still chaplaining for the police department, will continue. And it just continues to hone and sanctify and remove any kind of dross, right, that, that God finds in my life. So thank you guys for all of that. Um, we love you guys. Like I said, if we know more, we'll let you know more. But in the meantime, um, just got a few bonus parts on me. And uh, same old, same old. So happy to be here. Please keep the church in prayer as we've started this Revelation study. It's been very interesting to see the sheer volume of spiritual warfare that has been uh, blessed to come our way. So we must be doing something right. And with each and every teaching, I kind of feel like there's that opportunity to say that just getting up this morning and coming to church, just breaking free from the COVID scare or whatever has been kind of holding you back, for whatever you had to do just to get to the seat this morning, I'm really grateful because there's always that opportunity to take a different route. And I think the Bible, when it says in Hebrews 10, to don't forsake the gathering, it's really a blessing just to see you guys, just to have that physical touch, just to have that affirmation. Um, you know, someone I hadn't seen this morning in quite some time just shows up and there's just that instant kind of spiritual connection. Like we're not going through this alone. We're going through this together. And I uh, just want to thank you guys for that. So let me pray. And uh, I'm super thankful to have Sophia this morning blessing us. Praying for Robin's voice next week too, if my sister's voice can return. I sounded like Kermit T. Frog for most of the last uh, nine days. So I'm really grateful that my voice is back. But let me pray, and then we're going to jump into the last church of the seven churches, the letter to the Laodicea. Got lots of pictures and lots of stuff to share with you, and hopefully my emotions will stay steady and calm. I'm really excited to share this message with you. And like I said, um, other than men's breakfast next Saturday, there's not a whole, whole lot going on that I can tell you, but men's breakfast is going on next Saturday. So if you're a man and you eat, um, you're, that's the qualifications. And uh, if you have any questions, you can see our Rich out there. He'll be able to tell you, but great time to hang out. And each and every time we have it, uh, it's usually a pretty good turnout. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father God, this morning, uh, the opportunity just to see your name and just to say your name is such a blessing. Um, I know there's lots of stuff going on. Some stuff is spoken. Some stuff cannot be spoken. And yet, Father, it's just a reminder that um, in this life, you will have adversity. In this life, you will have struggle. And I just pray, Father, that the name of Jesus this morning um, supersedes all other thoughts. It supersedes all other concerns. And that regardless of how we came in here feeling, regardless of what our situation in life is, Father, um, we would just draw strength and comfort this morning, knowing that you've never left us, that you will never forsake us. Father, that your spirit has sealed us and keeps us and holds us so that the shalom of God, uh, the peace of God, not only does it passes all understanding, Father, but it provides that peace in the midst of conflict, not the absence of conflict, Father, but the peace in the midst of conflict. On behalf of all those this morning that are in conflict, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, Father, I just pray, Father, that the name of Jesus would heal, would restore, and for all those people that are still watching online, Father, encourage them this morning, touch them this morning. May your spirit draw them back to the body, Father, and remind them that who by worrying has added one day, Father. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word this morning. May everything that we say and everything that we do continue to bring honor and glory to and through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.
So this morning I'm discussing with you the last of the seven churches. It's the church of Laodicea. It's a church that considered themselves true believers. But unfortunately, as we read the letter this morning, we're going to find out that it's the only letter that was written to the church that has no affirmation in it. Not only does it have no affirmation in it, but it literally is laden with rebuke. So it's a church that's in trouble. It's a church that doesn't know it's in trouble, but it's a church that Jesus himself wants to remind them, I have something to say to you, and it's going to be stern, but I'm going to say it because I love you. Matter of fact, it's so stern that in the opening of the letter, there's some indications that Jesus wants them to realize that although John is the author of the letter, Jesus himself is speaking to the church directly, and he's going to use something that you see throughout the New Testament in many of the letters that were written to churches. When someone's opening letter to the church is written, they use identifiers. They use things to let them know who they are, something like an eyewitness, a disciple, an apostle. And so Jesus himself is kind of going to break through with this last letter to the pastor of the church. Uh, This is in uh, Revelation 3, verse 14. And it says, To the angel, to the pastor, which is the leader of the church of Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. Now, the reason why I say uh, the indicators are very important here, and this is something I'm not going to spend too much time this morning, but I think in your small groups and your life group discussions, is the clarification that the author wants people to realize that John is not writing this. This is coming from Jesus, because John would not use the affirmation, the words of the amen. Now, the words of the amen are a very powerful phrase. When we say amen, what we're saying is we agree that what's being said is trustworthy, So for one to identify themselves as the words of the amen, this is an indicator that Jesus is establishing, that he is the one authorizing this letter. He is the one speaking this letter. And so he's going to use this threefold kind of affirmation to let the pastor know this is pretty serious. As he chases that amen, saying, I'm the trustworthy one, he then follows it with the phrase, the faithful and true witness. Now, the faithful and true witness is also an indicator that there's many witnesses out there. There's many different things to have your attention, but there's only one faithful and true witness. So he identifies himself as that. You see that in like John 14, the way, the truth, and life. He's saying, from the very beginning, I have been and will continue to be the one who's responsible for all things. And then his final affirmation to the leader of the church is this phrase, the ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation is an indication that Jesus is telling him, from the very beginning, I have been. From the very beginning, I've been part of creation. And from the very beginning, I know what I want for my church. And unfortunately, what you have is not what I intended for my church. So I want you to understand something, this threefold affirmation, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation knows your deeds. He knows everything that you've done and why you've done it. And the situation is not good, folks. The situation is actually pretty dire. The fact that you're neither hot nor cold tells me that what you've given into is you've given into lukewarm. And I'm very disappointed with that. Matter of fact, he goes on to explain, I'm not just disappointed with that. I'm going to take the time to explain to you under the biblical principle of rebuke, reproof, and exhortation exactly what's required. Now, Laodicea is an interesting city. Laodicea was a place that 2,000 years ago, it was so rich in culture and blessing. It was one of those places that, you know, if you could go somewhere like uh, Beverly Hills of, you know, a city or whatever, it's the place you wanted to be. 
The problem was that the city had given itself into many different type of mixed worships. They had a Greek worship, they had all kinds of pagan worship, and, and because of that, even though there was 20 different churches located within the town, there was nothing that was about them that were godly. It was also known for being a place of a medical discoveries. They had a beautiful medical school there, and a matter of fact, in the, one of the two uh, amphitheaters they had, they would often have discussions and invite people to come in and speak. They were known worldwide for their salve, the salve they had for their eyes. So if you had eye issues, you would come to Laodicea and you would get this product and you could place it on your eyes and you would actually have some benefits to your seeing. And the product was so readily available that they put it in all kinds of other ointments. It was also said to be good for your ears and many different other things. Along with being famous for their medical schools, they were also known for their textiles. And I have a picture because I'm really visual about this message. There's some really cool things. So the first picture I have is of this black uh, sheep that kind of grew in the valley. So they were located in a valley. And within this valley, there was this black sheep that for some reason grew. And it had a very, very long, luxurious coat. And so because this wool was available to them, they were able to become known worldwide for their textiles. And in particular, what, what they would do is they would make garments of black so that you would identify yourself as a true town person, Laodicean, if you were dressed in black. And I made a small little note there because, you know, as funny as that seems, I think Johnny Cash would have absolutely been at home <laughs> in this town because if you wore black, then you, that was basically telling people you were from this town and you were in. They had the finest clothes. The black, when it was actually polished out, literally was shiny. It was shiny. It was just is a really good indicator. So that's one of the two cornerstones they had. The other cornerstone that they had was this idea that they were located in a, a very strategic location. They were literally located at the, based on the map there, as you can see, depending on how you came through the valley, starting from um, Pergamum at the end and moving all the way left, right, they were either at the end or if you started at Laodicea and came up, they were at the beginning. So because of that, they were getting constant flow northwest, southeast of traffic through their town. And that's a, you can't, you can't make yourself be somewhere. That's just happened to be where they are. And because of that, they became financially absolutely wealthy. I mean, wealthy beyond days because everyone bringing money into the valley to do the kind of silk road there, they all started at Laodicea. Now, it's a pretty cool little town. I got some pictures and some stuff that I want to show you about that. The town is about three miles long. Within the town, you can put up the rendering, the new rendering. Within the town, it literally had 4,000 stores. Within the 4,000 stores, it had five agoras. An agora is basically like a mall. It'd be like a South Coast Plaza within the mall. Additionally, within the mall, if you look right central in the middle of the picture where the big square building is, the small building to the offset and right, I have another close-up of that coming up, there were these huge, I mean magnificent fountains in the center of town. At the back of town was the first amphitheater where all the medical training and all the kind of open speakers would come. If you were a speaker of the day or had something wise to share, you would go to the main amphitheater at the back of town. And then the huge amphitheater, which is located, looks like a D just off the left of the screen there. That was a mega amphitheater. It held 40,000 people. And basically what they would do there is like Roman games. So, I mean, you're not talking about just any town. You're talking about the town. Laodicea was absolutely had it going on. And a couple of years ago, they actually started um, re renovating the town. You play this next picture up. And so the ruins actually start to show the colonnades and all the beautiful things that are going on there. So it's an amazing town with 20 churches, two amphitheaters, like I said, 4,000 stores, everything you possibly want. I basically call it the 
Beverly Hills of days of yore. Now, the one thing I wanted to put with this picture is they're starting to rebuild the town. They've been working on it for about 12 years. They're starting to dig up all the ruins. A lot of times when you see a colonnade street like that, you think that's all it was. That's why I put the big picture in there. You can realize every single street was colonnade. Every single street had those pillars going on it. I mean, it was, it was beyond magnificent. It was absolutely visually stunning. So as I spoke a couple years, I think a couple, about six months ago about a place, and people told me, oh, I'm going to go on vacation there. You can actually go there, and the ruins are all being restored. So a lot of what we're talking about today, you could actually go and physically see and touch. Now, one of the things that's so exciting about this is that because this town is being rebuilt, we have a chance to see just how wealthy they were. It unfortunately exposed one problem that they had. They became so self-sufficient. They were so kind of confident in what they had that that whole place was literally destroyed in AD 60 when an earthquake came through, and it kind of crashed through that whole Turkey Valley, the Lycus Valley. And when the Roman emperor called and offered assistance to them to rebuild, Laodicea was the only town that responded no thank you. No thank you. And Laodicea rebuilt its entire town, that drawing that I showed. They rebuilt their entire town on their own, of their own volition. And it says something about who they are, and it says something about what's important to them. It says, we got it. We got it. Our confidence is in ourselves. And for a town that has everything, and for a town that was so wealthy, you would think, okay, if you got it, then you must have water, right? I mean, you have this town. Can you put this next picture up? This town was so magnificent that at the center of town, this is the very center, as I showed you from the main D in town, this is the main center. These are the main fountains. It was this magnificent place where water was brought in. But unfortunately for Laodicea, there was no natural water source in the town, none. They had built this town and strategically placed it because of its location. They needed it to be there at the bottom of the Lycus Valley, and it became so popular that other cities started to call themselves Laodicea. So this one, as you actually read it in the Bible, it says Laodicea of the Lycus Valley. It's indicating notation. So other Laodiceas would do the same thing, telling you where they were. But the water that actually filled that came from 10 miles away from a, a, a mineral hot spring called Hierapolis, 10 miles above ground on a, um, just like the Roman aqueducts that you guys have seen, complex stuff, and six miles away from Colossae. Now, Colossae was kind of like the big bear of 2,000 years ago. It was the very first mountain springs water. Colossae was famous for its water. Everyone knew that if you wanted really good cold water, you went to Colossae. And yet on the other side of that, the famous side of that was Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. Unfortunately, hot springs, even though it was fresh water, was heavily minerally indated. And so the next picture I show you, here's what happened. Those, these are the ruins. These are the pipes. These are the terracotta pipes going to the fountains of that. And so the water was so mineral and dated and so tempered in nature that it literally started to seize off in the pipes. Now, this is just one picture of the actual pipes of the main thing. They have other pictures of giant, like, 40-inch, 60-inch terracotta pipes, and it's about 60% closed off in calcium. So that's how thick the calcium was in the water. So the hot water coming from 10 miles the cold water coming from six miles, and it's all coming to this town that's made itself out to be something so impressive. Now, if I have a picture, can you put the next one up of Hierapolis? Hierapolis is still today. You can go there today. It's absolutely well known for its mineral hot springs. And because these hot springs were so amazing, people would go there. So it's, it was like a wellness place. People loved to sit in the hot springs and enjoy that. And then most of the drinks that you had there were hot because there was hot water and it was fresh. 
The problem was in shipping it on the terracotta pipes over land for 10 miles, it just continued to absorb all the minerals so that by the time it got to Laodicea, it was, not, it was barely drinkable. It was said that if you boiled your vegetables in Laodicean water, your vegetables would taste of minerals and not even like the vegetables. So it was really a problem. Now, can you go to the next one in Colossae? Now, Colossae is everything you could possibly imagine in beautiful mountain springs. Like I said, there's all kinds of bottled water that you can buy today, but if you could have bought bottled water in a clay pot, this is what they would have been walking around selling. This stuff was fabulous. It was cold, it was fresh, and they had these mountain springs, and so it was flowing year-round. And so they they tried to do the same thing. They tried to take that water, and over a six-mile aqueduct, same thing, run it back to them. The problem was is even though their intentions were good, the reality was it didn't work for them. Even though they had the money, even though they could do everything they could possibly try to get the water to the town, one situation continued to be um, a problem for them, and that is they, they were known for the most tempid, undrinkable water around. And that's why when we get to this passage, the next part of the passage in verse 15, this is not just a spiritual rendering for them. This is an actual situation for them. So let me go to 15, and then we'll pick up this reading, and you can see just how relative this is for them. With verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I spit you out of my mouth. Now, it's interesting because a lot of people have taken this part of the passage and tried to make it really about evangelism. The problem is this is not about evangelism for them. This is an actual problem. This is a spiritual problem. And what Jesus is actually telling them is that this is not just evangelism for you. This is about faith for you. If you're hot, here's the benefit. Like a cup of coffee can be very enjoyable. There's, a, there's benefits to being hot. If you're cold and you really have you know, a dry mouth or something like that, a nice, cold, refreshing glass of water can be something that's super enjoyable. So being hot or being cold both have benefits. He's not saying from evangelism side, be one or the other. He's saying both of those have a benefit. But when I look at you and when I look at your church and I see your situation, what I see is complacency. What I see is this kind of mixing of the two hot and colds, and the reality is just tempered. It's literally good for nothing. It's as though you've kind of just thrown your hands up and said, well, this is what it is, and there's nothing we can do about it, and so we've kind of made peace with it. And the reality is it's not just about evangelism. It's about your faith, church. It's about your opportunity to say we actually know who we are in Christ, and we are doing something with it. Now, I don't know about you, but if you ever had the opportunity to be really thirsty in life, um, recently in the hospital, uh, day four, I had to get the surgery to get the port put in, and I was told I couldn't drink. Now, for someone who's having sore throats, dry mouth, and already has kidney issues, I drink the little bucket they gave me, the little pink bucket. About every 15 or 20 minutes, I was drinking the entire bucket. That bucket came from the nurse's station, half ice, half water, because that's how I asked for it. But on the day that I got my surgery, they told me at 12 midnight, I couldn't drink any more water. Well, that put me into an anxiety attack because I'm drinking water nonstop. So the thought of not drinking water, because I I wake up in the middle of the night and I still drink water all night long. Well, I woke up around 10 and I thought the surgery would be by 10. And so I hadn't had water in 10 hours. And I was in full panic. I'm in sweat mode. I'm in there and I'm waiting for a nurse. I'm pushing the thing to help, help, help. And she's like, you can't have any water. I'm like, you don't understand. You got to give me some medication. She goes, well, you can't take the medication. You want to take it dry? And I was like, no way. I would have choked myself out trying to choke something down. I said, can I have an ice chip, just one ice chip? I was pleading, grown man, 56 years old, you know, financially capable, and I'm pleading for an ice chip. And she said, I'm sorry, you can't have an ice chip. And I'm like, anything? 
She walks back in with this clear little cup. It looks like um, when you're at the dentist's office, the little spit cup. It has about a half an inch of water in it, and it has three little sticks with sponges on them. I'm talking like Jesus' day of yore, you know, back when you hand in the thing. These, these are medical sponges, about a half inch. They're blue. They taste like plastic. And, and, and the water that's in it is pure tempid. I mean, it's not cold or hot. It's nothing. And all I'm allowed to do is take that sponge out and wet my mouth. I, it was, I was raging. I literally, you talk about road rage with no car. I was raging in my room because I'm like, I, and you know what it was good for? Spitting out. That's all it was good for. At that temperature, it served no purpose other than to be spit out. And I realized something in the middle of this message. If you're not something, if you're not hot, if you're not cold, if you're not refreshing to people, okay? Let's say you have a believer who's really on fire. Then the word of God and worship can be a blessing to that person. Let's say you're a believer and you are struggling and you're kind of going through a cold spat. Then that believer can come to the church and the church can be a blessing. To be. Like I just, the message just started to wake me up about what the danger was for Laodicea and what Jesus was saying. So even in the midst of my struggle in that moment, I realized something. is like, there's nothing we don't want to be more than tempted. Being lukewarm is disgusting. It means we're good for nothing. It means literally we're spiritually indifferent. We've compromised our ability to remind ourselves what it was like to be on fire for the Lord or to be a refreshment to someone who really needs something, and the church has lost its power. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I intended for you guys, and I'm not going to settle for that. Matter of fact, not only am I not going to settle for it, but I'm going to rebuke you for it. Now, when it comes to rebuke, about at least a year ago, I know I taught on the Timothy passage that talks about rebuke. So there is an absolute biblical principle for rebuke. And Jesus is going to follow that. Rebuke always is, rebuke means to cut away, okay? To cut away. You identify the issue, you reprove it, you name the issue how it should be, and then you exhort, you draw close to that individual, and you encourage them. So watch this process as he says, this is harsh, folks. This is, this is to a church. Remember, this is to a pastor. Verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are, in fact, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, I don't know if you guys ever caught that when you read that the first time, but each one of the three is directly against the three that they established, right? Let's go back to that. You say, I am rich and I need nothing, and Jesus is saying, um, okay, no, you're poor, pitiful, and naked. And the first thing you need to do is to buy gold from him. Well, they're a banking center, they don't need to buy from anyone. Remember, they're the only town to refuse help from the emperor in rebuilding the entire three-mile town and 4,000 buildings, okay? And Jesus is telling them to buy gold from them. That's interesting because gold in heaven is pavement. So what is he saying, buy gold from me? No, what he's saying is, I need you to go through trials and persecution that refine you. I need you to be refined. I need you to have something that's of real value. You might have all the worldly wealth that you think you have, but you have no spiritual wealth. And unless you've been refined by trials and persecution, you are poor, spiritually speaking. What does he address next? Their textile industry. He says, I advise you, as a stark contrast, to buy white clothes for me, 
Well, that may or may not make sense depending on how you understand things, but based on the fact that you realize they were known for their black wool. They were known for being shiny and well-dressed and Laodiceans who identified themselves in their garments. And yet he's telling them absolutely in opposition, buy white clothes for me. Is it, is it a white clothes thing? No, he's talking about the white, the righteousness of God, right? This kind of white righteousness from God is just about when you put on the righteousness of God, there's a, there's a reality that you guys can't even understand. You guys are dressed nice and you think you're doing nice. And there's, if you guys actually type in Church of Laodicea, they have, within the ruins, there's beautiful baptismals, there's these mosaic floors. You guys have all this amazing, beautiful stuff, but you're void of one thing. I'm not there. And because of that, you need me there. You need to put on my righteousness. And finally, his final you know, accusation against them, he says, and I know you sell this salve to everyone, and people come from miles around, and you're famous, and you have this uh, amphitheater, and everyone knows, oh, go to Laodicea. They know what's going on. I'm telling you guys, you're blind. You're blind. Spiritually speaking, you can't see what's going on. So you need to put on the salve that I'm talking about, that when you anoint your eyes with this, you're going to see your dire situation. You're going to see just how dire your church is and how absolutely and utterly useless this church is and i am asking you to wake up to that put it on and see what i have in store for you now why would jesus say this why is this this seems pretty harsh to say to a church i mean he was he was not this harsh with any of the other churches but he's harsh with this church because verse 9 tells us and a lot of people use this for parenting and so think about that in context Jesus is telling an unrepented church, Jesus is telling a church that's completely wayward in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love. Now, if there's anything people love to say about God, um, usually they get mad at him when life isn't going their way and they say, you know, why does God allow evil? Why does God do this? Why? The, the first attribute that should come to your mind when you think about God is love. This message, even though it's harsh to hear, even though it's harsh to teach, it's about love. Because he, those he loves, he rebukes. If you don't rebuke someone, if you're not paying attention to the people that you care about, if you're not guiding them, instructing them, and telling them what's biblically right and wrong, and then drawing them close, you're not actually loving them. We're not called here to be standing on the sideline and not say something. When there's an opportunity to speak truth in it, Jesus says, I'm saying this because I love you. I'm saying this because I have something for your church. And I want you to remember something. I'm asking you to cut these things away because I have something else for you. I'm identifying the fact that you need to repent. You need to stop living on your own. You need to stop being comforted in your own self-sufficiency and realize that without sufficiency on me, Everything you have is nothing. It's all for naught. And so although other people may name their towns after you and name their cities after you, this is not a church that I would name after myself. This is not what I intended for my church. What could happen if you listen to him and you follow through? Well, verse 20 ends up with the perfect exhortation. Let me read verse 20 to you. It says this, Behold, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, I asked uh, Beth to find the picture that's been hanging in my family for many years. I don't know if you guys have seen this. I have, this is in my office. This has been around for years and years. This is the behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's been around for a long, long, long time. 
Now, I don't know about you, but it's one of the most popular verses in the world. Probably in the top five verses ever been used. But once again, without the rest of the story, I don't think it has the same significance. Just like John 3.16 or the 23rd Psalms. The rest of the story is this message is being given by Jesus Christ to a church. Man, when we think about evangelism today, we don't really think about evangelism to the church. We think the church is here so we can be equipped and we hear all these other verbiage that we use so you guys can go out and go be the church and lead people and share people and show faith and provide the opportunity for people to make a transition into faith. But this message is directly related to the church. And he's speaking directly to the pastor of a church saying, hey, look, uh, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. So by default, I'm on the outside. Maybe you hadn't noticed that, but that's not where I'm supposed to be. I need to get to the inside, and in order for that to happen, a transition has to happen. The transition is simply this. You have to hear, and you have to open, right? Now, I've always found this interesting about the picture. You see the size of the people? I think a lot of people have come to the point in their life where they kind of open that little people and they kind of know who Jesus is and they kind of know where Jesus is standing and they kind of know what Jesus is doing. And so by proximity, they associate themselves with faith. Now, there's a passage in the Bible, and I didn't want to bring it up at the beginning because I think you need to wait to this right here. But if you've ever read the passage in the Bible where in Matthew, there's a church standing before him and saying, but didn't we do all these things in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? How about all this stuff that we did in your name? And he says, depart from me. I knew you not. That's a pretty scary comment to think about in the scripture. But all of a sudden, when I started reading this passage, I started thinking about it. What about if you had a relationship that was exclusively established just with Jesus at the door? What happens if your understanding of Jesus is you knew where he was and you knew where you could go talk to him at any given time, but the reality was he's still on the opposite side of the threshold until you actually open the door and make that transition to say, come into my life. I receive you into my life. I receive forgiveness of my sins. I am asking you to come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. Rule my household right? Because who's ruling the household if he's on the outside? By the way, in Greek, the concept of him standing there and knocking is not like, hello, I don't want to bother anyone. Not, not Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. I'm here. Open the door. Hello, it's Jesus. I'm here. Open the door. It's Jesus. I'm here. Open the door. I find that kind of stuff baffling, right? Because we don't understand the work of the Holy Spirit, and a lot of people are like, well, I'll come to Jesus one day when I get things right or when I figure it out. Folks, you'll never come to Jesus. Don't you dare confuse yourself that you came to Jesus. Jesus comes to you. Jesus knocks at your door. Jesus continually knocks at your door. Jesus pursues you, right? Because the rest of that stuff is confusing when you try to throw yourself in the mix. Well, I found Jesus. Oh, bless you, my sister. I found Jesus here. I lost Jesus here. You, first, you don't find, how do you find and lose Jesus? There's no finding and losing Jesus. Jesus is a force to be reckoned with. Jesus is the force that created all things. And if Jesus says, I'm standing at your door and knocking, he's saying, I love you, I'm pursuing you, and I want a relationship with you. 
but there's one situation I will not do. I will not kick your door down. You must receive the gift and open the door. In order to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you must receive the gift of salvation and you must initiate that transition from a heart of stone to a heart of life. And it only happens one way. You have to open the door and say, come in. And when he comes in, he says, not only, I don't come in a high five, hey, thanks for your thing, put your ADT sign out in front, and now you have security, and he moves on. It's not like that. Having a meal with someone 2,000 years ago was very intimate. It was very personal. All the foods were kind of shared. All the sauces were all kind of dipped and shared together. And Jesus is saying, from the moment you invite me and in, you initiate relationship, I initiate relationship with you, and the Spirit of God comes and seals that relationship, and now you can follow me. I knock on the door. There's none righteous. I stand and knock repetitively. You run, you hide in your house. I stay at the door and I wait. I speak and I wait for your response. And if you invite me in, I will come in. He's not going to leave anyone high and dry. In my father's house, there's many rooms, right? Jesus only wants a select few. Only a select few will go to heaven. People have all these different philosophies about faith. Just, you don't see that. You see Jesus pursuing all of his children, even the lost children. There's no delineation between good and bad because there's none righteous. Jesus loves everyone. Jesus died for everyone. Everyone will have an opportunity to either open the door and let Jesus in or refute Jesus at the door and commit the only unforgivable sin. Now, for those of you who are not a big fan of the unforgivable sin, this is a representation of the unforgivable sin. The Spirit of God within Jesus stands at the door of a human being, knocking and asking to come in. If you spend your entirety of life with whatever breath God has given you, refuting that and saying, I know where you are, I know who you are, but you cannot come in, that act is the refuting of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. Okay, that's blasphemy. Everything else can be bad, horrific, and horrible. And Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ. So God can work the rest of that out. And if you read the scripture, you already know he's done that. Because from Moses to David, there's a lot of really interesting people in there, right? And none of that ever stopped him. This message is so powerful and so encouraging because to the end of verse 21 and 22, then Jesus just says this. Here's the situation, guys. To the one who is victorious, verse 21... I give you the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, I don't know about you, but if you need motivation in life, if you need motivation spiritually to be more bold with your evangelism and more bold with your faith, let me encourage you, you're not just laboring for nothing. You're laboring to co-rule this recreated earth, which, I mean, I like the earth now. I know it's kind of a difficult place. But I hear people complaining about the earth. I like the earth. I, I can't imagine what it would be to go fishing and catch fish every single time. You know, I can't imagine what it would be to not have mosquitoes biting me at night. I can't imagine what it would be to be part of a world that's perfected with no sickness and no pain and no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and no cancer. I can't imagine what it would be like to actually go swimming and not have to worry about sharks or jellyfish. I can't imagine what it would be like, but I can tell you this. I, I like the world now. I think it's a beautiful place. But the thought of what he's going to recreate for us to spend eternity with him is highly motivating to me. 
And the thought of someone not being with him for eternity and being in damnation and being in darkness and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and being separated from God and having an unquenchable thirst is highly motivating to me. It motivates me to want to share my faith. It motivates me to want to invite someone to church. It motivates me to want to invite somebody into my life so that I can walk with them and talk with them and say, hey, look, I don't know what you're going through, but we're probably going through similar things. But because Jesus loves us, he's not just offering us something. He's offering us everything. He's offering what he has, cohabitation. I mean, lay up where moth and rust and thieves can't steal. Lay up treasures. I mean, I'm not sure what the crown ceremony is going to be like and how long we're going to wear them and when we get to return them back and how that whole thing is. But that's just icing on the cake. It's going to happen. And the church of Laodicea had just lost their whole faith. They had lost their whole focus. And they're meandering in the minutiae. And they're lost in the tempedness of not being refreshing in any capacity. And Jesus says to him, because I love you, I'm going to take the time to have this letter written to you because you need to wake up. Because years later, this letter will be written. And years later, people will be able to identify with something. And you know what, folks? I don't know if you've checked your spiritual temperature lately, but some of us have, we're not hot and we're not cold. We've, we've kind of fallen into the mundane. And somehow we've put the, it's the pastor's responsibility, it's the church's responsibility, it's others' responsibility to share faith. And I know even last week we talked about saying prayer and how prayer works. Folks, the Bible says to pray continuously. If you're not praying continuously, if you're only praying at church, then you know, whether or not you got what we were talking about last week. I mean, I'm praying continuously for my next breath, for my next hour, for my next whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship that's ongoing because I've invited the Lord into my house. He's now Lord and Savior in my life. He's turned me, he's made me a new creation in Christ, right? That's what the scripture says. He's turned my heart of stone into a heart of life. I don't want to do the old things. I, don't, I labor against my old life. Like, Paul, I don't want to do them. Sometimes I do, but I have the Spirit of God in me telling me, you can't live like that. You've got to live differently. And what do you want me to do? I want you to go. I want you to make. I want you to teach. And I want you to baptize. And I don't want you to worry about anything else. Because none of the worrying you're going to do is going to change any of it. And then I read a statistic like, one in 80 Christians will lead someone to the Lord. One in 80 Folks, we're only about 100 people. That means there's only like 1.7 in this church that are taking the time to actually share their faith with someone else. That's not going to work. That's not what he called us to be. He didn't call us to be a comfortable church, to hang out with our friends, to enjoy this beautiful building so that we could all just say, I have ADT in front of my house. I'm good. Tear your ADT sign down. The thief is going to come in. The thief is going to steal. Cancer is going to steal. Relationships are going to be broken. Families will be turned against one another. Brothers and sisters will leave their faith and leave their families when they come to a true understanding of who Christ is because he's come inside of their house and he's sealed them and he's indwelled them and he's now given them a new understanding that they didn't have before. Along with all this, one reality remains true for me. And that is this question. I'm so I'm almost getting ready for you. This morning when I woke up, I asked myself this. What can I do today? What can I do today between the time I wake up and the time I go to sleep? What can I do today to tell the Lord, thank you for coming into my house? 
Thank you for cleansing me of my sins. Thank you for the opportunity to be called a child of the, of the Most High. What can I do today to say thank you? Because I know I'm not laboring for nothing. I know that I'm laboring for something. And that sense of urgency, church, that sense of urgency inspires me to say, all right, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What can I do today? If it's at the doctor's office, then so be it. My doctor gets the blessing. If it's at my El Matador and the owner, Dave, comes over and checks me, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check in with that. If it's at Ruby's and I'm getting a sandwich, then Ruby's going to get it. If it's at Rubio's, wherever I go, whatever I do within this town and every relationship that I have within this town, I am going to try to live in such a way as to say, whether I'm hot, whether I'm cold, I don't know, but I want to be refreshing to you. I want my faith to be refreshing to you. I want to lift you up when you've fallen, and I want to sing and dance with you when you're in joy. Met, met someone this morning who also happens to be on dialysis. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing. I want to share in the joy of the pain. I want to share in the frustration of all. If you don't have that sense of urgency, church, then you risk falling into the very same thing that Laodicea did. They had everything. Beauty beyond belief. Clothes, finances, resources, everything. Yet they were missing one thing, the simplicity of a living, breathing faith with the Almighty God. I pray this morning that you would just take some time with us as we reflect and worship to ask yourself where you are, how motivated you are, and think about your friends, think about your family, think about this community, and people that are walking around you and living around you and we're coming to church and hearing God's word can be a source of encouragement. May this church never stop being a source of encouragement for the lost, for the found, and for anyone in between that's struggling. May God continue to bless and keep our church. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to just read your word and see with comfort. It's just so perfectly clear, Father, that you have, you have called the church to be a certain way. You have called the church to be a certain thing. And if we're not that, then the only loving thing you can do is to rebuke us. It would be unloving of you to let us wallow in the mire and, and leave us without your instruction. Father, I pray that the instruction that does come, the things that it asks us to remove, complacency, indifference, Father, this morning, that you would just awaken our spirit to this, awaken our spirit to this sense of urgency. Father, if not, just think about the last two years and what COVID has done to so many people, so much fear about something like a, an infection. It's already been appointed, the Bible says, for man to be born and man to die. What's going to change that? Nothing. Who by worrying is added one day? Father, we've got to wake up. We've got to remind ourselves what's really important, to keep the main thing the main thing, to go, to make believers, to baptize them and to teach them. There's only one great commission. Everything else is good for conversation, Father, but we need to be reminded. Remind us this morning. Thank you for the work that Jesus has done on the cross. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for calling me one of your own. May this morning, if there's anyone in this building who does that know that, if there's anyone watching online who does not know the saving power of Jesus Christ, may they open their door to the living, breathing Savior this morning. I pray it all and do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Thank you.
you guys just stand as we just finish singing this? Cause you're worthy, you're worthy, oh worthy. You're worthy to be praised forever. Yes, you are Thank you to Pastor Jeff. That was an amazing scripture sharing this morning. And we want to say thank you to Sophie for joining us. She always takes us to the throne of God. We're so grateful. Just ask that you lift up our pastoral staff in, in prayer uh, because we have started with the uh, stories in Revelation and, and breaking down this book. Yes, your, your church staff has been attacked, and many of you may have been spiritually as well. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen. So today we stand together as a church. We are so glad you are all here. If there's somebody around you you don't know, please make sure you say hello and good morning to them. Anybody online, if you've got any questions, any prayer requests, please send them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. But most of all, we pray and ask God for protection for all of you as we walk in Jesus' name. Now, as Pastor Eric would say to everybody, go and be the church. God bless you all. place I turned for healing left me more broken than the last. Take me back to the place that feels like home, to the people I can depend on, to the faith that's in my 